Welcome to and let's be heard for Friday, July 21st, 2023. I'm Micah Chopley. I'm a bit frazzled, frazzled because I literally just walked in the door about a few minutes ago from seeing uh, Oppenheimer. So it's like uh, I'll have the review at the end of the show. It's tough, you know, when you see a film, any film, really, and you have to review it. So I try not to see films on Friday night, but sometimes I have no choice. I like to see them maybe a day or two ahead of time, so I have time to digest them. And so, of course, I had no choice the way the scheduling was. Oppenheimer is about three hours, so you have to schedule it right, you know. And uh, and I don't understand some of these they, 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 these theaters. I don't understand how they come up with these show times these days. I mean, they'll have like five p.m. show and an eight thirty show. What is that? First of all, five p.m. you go, goes into dinner time, especially for a three hour film. An eight thirty show you end up getting out at midnight. Doesn't make any sense. So I finally found a six thirty show. Couldn't see it on the IMAX screen. And, uh, and literally just walked in the door. So, and it's, this is a tough one because there's so much to digest. It's so deep. And I had very little time to think about it. So you'll be getting my initial thoughts, initial thoughts, but I'll talk more about that later. Um, so make sure you stay tuned for the, for the Oppenheim review at the end of the show. So yesterday I talked a lot about uh, JFK Jr. and his, uh, testimony. And just looking more at it, it's quite incredible. It's quite incredible how the Democrats just tried to tear him apart, just tried total character assassination. There was nothing nothing like you said this about the vaccine. Here are the facts to refute what you had to say. It was none of that, right? It wasn't like you said this about the safety Here's the proof you were wrong. You said this about the efficacy. Here's the proof you were wrong. You said this about the trial, the, the trials by, and this is, and this is the truth. Nothing. There was nothing. It was all, you're a conspiracy theorist, you're anti-Semite, you're a racist. So it was, it, it was all character assassination because the Democrats have nothing to stand on. Nothing. And it's amazing. And I heard many people talking about this is how the Democrats had no shame in character assassination against a candidate. Think about how far this fa- party has fallen, how deep into the abyss it has it has it has plummeted. For them to try to character assassinate a Kennedy, a man whose uncle was JFK, whose whose father was RFK, it's a, it's truly amazing, and they had no shame in doing this because this is a party with no shame. This is a party who really stomps on the First Amendment with glee, stomps on the Second Amendment with their chest puffed out. So they, of course, have no shame. So it is shocking that they went after a Kennedy the way they did. But in the end, is it really all that surprising? Probably not. Um, So uh, hearing a lot of people just just being amazed at how they went after a Kennedy. But once again, we're going to see their, the party cult, the cult Democrats, the Democratic establishment will back all of those people and what they did because they truly believe the lies. They believe the lies, right? And as Kennedy himself 
pointed out. There are all these lies that say I'm anti-vax, yet my whole family, all my kids are vaxxed. I've gotten all my vaccinations other than COVID. I've gotten flu shot for 20 years. and But these are all facts that don't matter to the cult. The cult doesn't care. Um, and we've talked about this. There are two very dangerous cults right now in this country, and it's the cult of Trump and it's the Democratic establishment cult, or by you know, inference, the, uh, by connection, by uh, analogy, the cult of Biden, right? And the cult of Biden is the cult of Obama, it's the cult of Clinton, right? And they will try to character assassinate anyone that run that run against their cult members, right? We saw this with Hillary and Bernie, the way the establishment cult of Democrat went after Bernie, the way the establishment, they did it twice, right? And now they're doing it with, with RFK. So how dare you run against Hillary? How dare you run against Biden? These are these establishment Democrat figures. These are the people who a lot of people in that party would put on Mount Rushmore. That's how crazy they are. It's like the, the Democrat establishment Mount Rushmore. Well, you know who it would be. It'd be Bill Clinton, be Barack Obama, be Hillary Clinton, and Joe Biden. That's how sad. Think about think about a Mount Rushmore of Hillary, Bill, Barack, and and uh, and Joe Biden. How 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 absolutely absurd that is. And the Obama one was actually talked about, right? They actually verbalized that. I heard a lot of people, a lot of Democrats talking about how Obama should be added to to Mount Rushmore. So they're nuts. These people are crazy, and of course the. Call Trump is just as insane, which is why once Biden and Trump are both out of the picture, maybe we can start talking about issues more. Maybe we can start doing with RFK Jr. said, which is being civil and talking about issues and, and, and not being in this cult mentality where you must attack anyone who criticizes your cult. And so that's basically where we are right now. We're in a situation where until the cult leaders are gone, by hook or by crook, by any means necessary. This is going to continue. So we'll talk more, obviously, about COVID and, and Fauci and and RFK and all that. And boy, this is really going to tie into the Oppenheimer review because we're going to talk about, obviously, there's a lot of politics involved there as well, and also science, right? What is science? Who is who is science? Who represents science? And the egos around the scientist. But what I want to play is something that I just discovered a few minutes ago as I was preparing for the show. This is a video, evidently, a, a comparison. There were two videos. Earlier today, there were two videos released from both the DeSantis and the Trump campaigns. And this kind of edits them together. So you can hear the difference between the, the DeSantis campaign video and the Trump campaign video. And in the DeSantis campaign, I'll describe it. He's he's doing a podcast. So he's sitting at a table with a microphone. And Trump is just doing a stand-up video, right? Like Trump loves to do where he stands there doing that weird thing. Sometimes where he twists his body in weird ways and, and just talks into the camera. So that's the that's the setting up the mise-en-scene of this. <laughs> talking about movies lately. But okay, but let, let but just listen to the difference. Okay. You have a massive bureaucratic administrative state 
that exist almost outside of typical elections. The sanctimonious polls are crashing because of a stance on obliterating Social Security and Medicare. To take power out of Washington uh, and send it back to the states, the localities, and individuals, that means we need a radical reduction of the federal bureaucracy. Nothing he will ever do is going to change his votes against. None of these people are elected, and they purport to tell us what kind of energy we can use, what kind of car we can drive. Attracting small crowds that leave really early, that's never a good sign. The founders never wanted to have consolidated power like that because they understood that's a threat to freedom. Changing his name in the middle of the campaign to de-sanctus, I will tell you, it just doesn't work. The ruling class in D.C., they get almost every major issue wrong. And so these are the last people you would want to surrender judgment and freedom to. Never change your name in the middle of a campaign. Thank you very much. So you can see how insane Trump is. So Ron DeSantis is talking about actual issues and doesn't mention Trump at all, where Trump is absolutely obsessed with DeSantis. Think how insane you have to be to be obsessed with the way someone says their name and make that part of your campaign video and also obsessed with crowd sizes, but we know Trump has always been obsessed with the crowd sizes because his dick is probably so small. But on top of that, what's really bizarre is that it's Trump's crowds that have been dwindling to the point where he has to lie about the size. Uh, Bill Mitchell's done a great job on Twitter of, of showing the actual shots of his crowd compared to what Trump says. So a crowd of 300, Trump will say, is 5,000. A crowd of you know 3,000, Trump will say, is 30,000. So he's got to lie about it. So if you have to lie about it, it shows your kind of unhappy with the numbers, um, that you can't just stand on the numbers. And on top of that, Trump had to crash a UFC event and then make it look like it was his event when it was the UFC event. People were there to see wrestlers, not him, not a wannabe wrestler. Um, but his obsession with De- DeSantis is just insane, obviously insane, talking about his crowd sizes, how he says his name, when DeSantis is talking about issues and doesn't mention Trump at all. So think about the polls that are showing how far ahead Trump is. Well, if that's the case, why is Trump so obsessed with Ron DeSantis? If he's so far ahead, why would he ever talk about him? And if DeSantis was so far behind, why would he never talk about Trump? That's not the way it works. When you're well ahead, you don't need to talk about the person so far behind you. If you're for, if you're so far behind, in reality, you need to go after the top dog. So we know that Trump is full of shit, that the, the, the he, and he proves that he's both crazy and that polls are nonsense. But really is that's such a striking difference that Trump is obsessed with DeSantis. DeSantis is not obsessed with Trump. DeSantis is obsessed with the issues, right? And wants to be president to make the country better for most people, for the masses. And Trump doesn't talk about any issues. Does not talk about the government doesn't talk about the establishment, always claims he's anti-establishment and didn't say one word there about the powers that be. Well, DeSantis is talking about that. He's talking about that, right? He's constantly talking about the, he's, he's actually looking, he's, DeSantis is looking to actually drain the swamp. He doesn't just need a slogan. It's not just a slogan for DeSantis, something he actually wants to do. Um, where Trump, of course, said he was going to drain the swamp and didn't, got more swampy. Remember, Trump said a lot of things that never happened, right? Trump supporters, of course, well, they're in a cult. So what's interesting is the cult is so deep. I understand this is Twitter. 
and it's a very small section of society. And most Republicans are not on Twitter. I know it's a shock, but most people who are going to vote in the primary don't even have a Twitter account. But the people who are on Twitter are often part of the cult. And uh, their criticism, of they, they, don't, they don't seem to understand that they watch these videos, that video I just played for you, and the takeaway from the cult, the cultists, are that Ron DeSantis is sitting down slumped and, and, and Trump is standing like very presidential with American flags behind him. That's where the cult, that's what the cult sees. See, the cult sees that here. The cult wasn't listening to the words. The cult isn't looking at the, the actual video, right? The, the, the substance of the video. They're just trying to basically see what they can to continue their, their cult love. They're very sick, twisted, bizarre, cultish like love of Donald Trump. But that shows you where we are. And as I've tried to explain to people, you can't uh, debate the cult. You can't talk to the cult. You can't try to reason with the cult. You simply have to realize what they are and go through them. Destroy them, basically. Right? So, or I hope they you know, commit Harry Carey, like so many cults do in the end. That's, that's all you can do. You can't try to reason. It's, it's impossible. Look, if, if, if someone is still a Trump supporter in July of 2023, you're not going to change them. Remember, people didn't become Trump supporters last month. There's no one who disliked Trump three years ago and now like him. These are people who have loved him for the last, oh, eight years at least, right? So there's no way you're going to get through with them. They're not going to, you notice if you didn't change their minds from 2015 till now, you're not going to change their mind from now till next year. It's not going to happen. So it's like beating your head against the wall. Just understand what they are, call them what they are, and go through them. And that's, I believe, what a lot of, what Ron DeSantis is doing, right? He's not even talking about Trump. He's not talking about Trump supporters. He's just simply talking about issues that he believes will appeal to the majority of Republican voters. And come the general election, the majority of independent voters and even some Democrats. So that's what he's looking to do. But it's such a stark difference when you listen to a video like that, right? I mean, where one guy is obviously psychopathic. He's a, he's a psycho. Who cares if someone calls themselves DeSantis or DeSantis? Who cares? What I say is DeSantis 2024 and DeSantis 2024. I don't care what he calls himself. So, but that's, it's, it's, a, it's such a, it's just, a, think about what a crazy thing, how much therapy is needed to take, to cure that, where you're obsessed with how someone says their name. You're obsessed with a crowd size of someone else and, and your own crowd size is that you have to lie about them. There's something very sick and twisted and insane about that kind of a person. And that's what Trump should do. He should retire. Get some good psychotherapy and uh, ride off into the sunset along with Joe Biden. That would be the best thing for the country, for sure. You know, so um, once again, I, I don't know. Once I'm not in a cult, so I can see things clear. Um, but how you can listen to Biden and RFK Jr. and decide that Biden's your guy. 
or listen to Trump and then DeSantis and 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 believe Trump is your guy. This is not normal. These are these aren't normal comparisons. These aren't like candidates that are like close, right? One in the Trump DeSantis deal, Trump is totally insane. He's absolutely certifiable, right? And then you have Biden, who's obviously in some kind of stage of dementia. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to say if it's stage one, two, three, or four, but it's obvious. So how you can think that can be president for five more years, but RFK Jr. can't be president, how you can look at Trump and say that should be president again, but not DeSantis, really shows how powerful that cult mentality is. It shows that that cult of personality is so strong. But when I say cult of personality, doesn't that usually mean someone should have a good personality? I mean, both Biden and Trump don't exactly have endearing personalities. Trump is grating and insane um, and uh, uh, egotistical. And Biden is an old, cranky, uh, forgetful uh, uh, guy who doesn't even know where he is. I mean, I don't understand. And, and we're even hearing now a lot of rumors about people who are working with him who say he's actually mean and nasty. So I don't understand what this cult is like a cult. It's not like, my goodness, someone who has a very vibrant, right, <laughs> and pleasing and uh, vivacious and bubbly personality. I can see that kind of a cult of personality. But the cult of personality around Trump and Biden, I mean, it's actually mind-blowing that anyone thinks that these guys have an endearing personality, have a personality that you would want to be leading a nation for four more years is absolutely mind-boggling. Speaking of shitty personalities, what I understand, Richard and Ebright writes that the NIH – under Acting Director Tabak and NIAID, under Acting Director Oshenslaus, have been systematically refusing to cooperate with congressional oversight authorities. This, this refusal to cooperate with congressional oversight gravely endangers congressional appropriations for NIH and NIAID, and it needs to stop. So they do not want to, um, they don't want to cooperate with the congressional oversight. So they're looking to, uh, they're basically looking to not cooperate because they don't want to answer for all the horrible decisions that were made. Um, and now we're learning much more about Fauci received an email. Uh, and this is basically the Anderson Holmes 80% lab leak due to say Fauci tells you all should lost. We need to talk ASAP in this email. Right. Fauci hopes hops on a call with Anderson. So Anderson's nine million basically. Right. I see what happened. So Fauci. Um, Anderson, I guess, wanted to uh, push the the lab leak, believed in the lab leak. And Fauci said, no, it, it can't be that. And he spoke to him and then Anderson switched uh, his views on it. And then Anderson's $9 million NIAID grant gets approved by Fauci. But nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. I mean, this is what we've talked about with Fauci, how he pressured people who needed grants and he controlled the money. So you had a guy, talk about a conflict of interest, a guy who, who controlled the money to all these doctors and scientists and these grant money. 
and he basically pressured them to toe his line, whatever he believed, whatever he was trying to push. Um, and if you didn't, you weren't going to get the, the grant money, right? It's funny how they impeached Trump for something similar, right? They supposedly impeached Trump for, like, trying to strong arm Zelensky, right? Um, and and he hinted at you not getting him money or not supporting or whatever it may be. So it was, you know, you know, uh, 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 strong arming the guy, strong arming another world leader um, in order to do something that Trump wanted. That was impeachable. But here we have Fauci, who did this to so many scientists, right? So many different people who needed that grant money and basically let them know that if you don't, you know, if you disagree with me, especially publicly um, on the lab leak theory and on other stuff too, having to do with, you know, mass or vaccines and all that stuff, that you're not going to get your grant money. And so we have proof of this, right? With people who were believing in a lab leak theory, we know it was the lab leak now. And that Fauci found out that they were believing that, spoke to them, and of course their views changed and the money came through. This is why you cannot have any situation in the future where you have a doctor like this who controls the purse springs also making these decisions, right? Also having the power to make these decisions because it's a clear, clear conflict of interest. Like I've said, the more we learn about Fauci, the more evidence that comes in, we know that he should be in jail, that he's a absolute criminal. He's a crooked politician. He's not a doctor. He's not. A, you know, I remember the scene from Scarface um, where uh, Al Pacino's character, Tony Montana, um, is uh, stabbed in the back by the Robert Loggia character, right, who um, is his boss and thinks he's getting out of line, Al Pacino, and getting too big for his britches and tries to have him kill. And of course, he's unsuccessful. And Al Pacino knows that he tried to have him kill. So he shows up the next day and he kills Robert Loggia. And there is sitting a crooked cop um, who was working in cahoots with Loggia. You know, he would uh, get money from from the mob and and and, uh, and let them do what they wanted. And if didn't get his money, then, of course, he'd cause problems. So he basically wasn't a real cop. Right. He basically was a mobster. He was a crooked cop. Harris Yulin. I love Harris Yulin, great character actor, plays this crooked cop. And he's in the room when Pacino, Tony Montana, kills Robert Loggia. And then he sits down and, you know, makes it clear that he's about to kill <laughs> this crooked cop. And Harris Yulin says to him, you better watch it, Tony. I'm a cop. And he says, you ain't no cop. And he shoots him dead. That's a guy who is a crooked cop. He's basically a mobster, not a cop. And the same thing goes for Fauci when it comes to being a doctor or scientist. He's not a doctor. He's not a scientist. He's a politician. And he's a crooked politician. He's a crooked politician. One could only wish that Tony Montana was in the room. was somewhere to be found. Anyone know where I can find Tony Montana? And I'm not talking about the mayor of Miami. I'm not talking about Suarez. So... It's this is this Fauci thing where you know people see him as a doctor and a scientist. He's not, and and more and more we're seeing that he was a crooked politician who acted like a mobster. Right? You do what I say. You say what I say. You do not second guess me. Right? You do not disagree with me publicly. 
or you're not getting this money. You're not getting your grant. So it's it, it's it, in so many ways this guy is just a a a a, a crooked criminal. He's he's a criminal, right? He's a cheap criminal, and he should be behind bars. And hopefully one day that will happen. I don't care if he's 90 years old when it happens. It needs to happen. It needs to happen. Um, Let me see what else here. Um, You know, I, I think, yeah, Bill, I'll get you in one second. I will. Absolutely 100%. Uh, but Ian Miller, just closing this out here, Ian Miller even put out today um, that you wouldn't think it'd be possible for Tony Fauci to look worse or more corrupt, I'd say, than he already did. But somehow there's always something new and even more indefensible every few days. And that refers to the uh, the switcheroo that Anderson made after he spoke to Fauci and then received his money. Um. So that's, you know, what we need. To, and once again, now we're seeing that these directors of the NIH and, and such are not going to cooperate with Congress. And of course, they should be forced to cooperate. All these people, all these people need to be arrested if they don't cooperate with Congress. They all need to be arrested and a point needs to be made. Uh, Bill, how's it going? How's your, how's your night going or your morning going, I should say? Well, I haven't gone to the bed yet. I think I could wait till the show's over. <laughs> but I'm awake, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, of course. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll get rid of all that poop then because I tell you, maybe I'll poop out giant Fauci, you know? <laughs> and all his co-criminals. Holy yeah, this shit. Is a, once again, we learn, the more we learn about this guy, the more you have to see him as basically just as a, as a, as a crook. I mean, there's no, the guy, I don't know if the guy was ever, maybe he was a doctor, you know, 50 years ago, or there was some time when he cared about science and health and helping people, but he became just a, a really, a really crooked politician, kind of wannabe mobster. That's basically what he is. Well, that's it. We're, we're ruled by mobsters and they're dressed like doctor, uh, people like him or lawyers or politicians. Remember George Carlin said, you'll never see the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal, cheat, and lie in a courthouse full of judges, politicians, and lawyers. It would create a hostile work environment, you know. So anyway, there you have it. Um, And of course, his first rule is I never trust anything my government tells me. God bless him. Isn't that the truth? So we got a question. And getting it, so that gets right back to your your opener, the censorship hearings. It is so we're living in a total clown world that the the science, the real science, not the propaganda, is so damning to this whole COVID narrative. Everything from the PCR, which is Kerry Mullis, of course, a Nobel Prize winning scientist that created it, never created it to diagnose a disease ever. That's not the purpose of PCR, and Daniel knows that. And that you can't diagnose a disease with it. The Anyway, that's a whole other matter. Um, you know, we've talked about that. You know, you go to uh, the, the infection fatality rate of COVID. Why are we even talking about 
vaccinating people for something with an infection fatality rate, which they knew ahead of time, by the way, because they generated this virus in the lab. They knew exactly what they were doing. Moving on from there, that's all been revealed in the uh, Dr. Andrew Huff, who was vice president of EcoHealth Alliance, the whistleblower, and the money that Fauci paid uh, to Peter Daszak, you know, through EcoHealth right. Alliance. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? It's all, it's all racketeering act. You know what I mean by that? It's, it's, it's all it, it, literally, you know, people talk about conspiracy theories. This is a true crime against humanity conspiracy, and people should be prosecuted in international criminal courts, but we know how that goes. Um, you know, these are crimes against humanity, without a doubt. This is premeditated, and to get to that, and the, all these things I have in the chat, by the way, Mike, um, Dr. David Martner, co-founder of MCAM, his testimony before the European Union, the parliament that you'll never hear in our court and in our legislature. He's never been called, even though Dr. Peter McCulloch has and, you know, other doctors. But you won't hear Dr. David Martin because he's got all the goods, he's got all the receipts, he's got all the patents going back to the late 1960s, the generation of coronavirus from the cold virus, the, the, uh, mRNA spike protein vaccine first being used in vegetarian medicine starting in the 1990s, the research at the end of the 80s where they patented that. There is no warp speed. That's all a fraud. And all the patents that led up to where we are today, All Dr. David Martin has all that lined up. And he's got a dossier you can download if you go to the totality evidence link I put in the chat where you can see all this. It's a couple hundred pages, you know. I mean, this is thoroughly researched from a guy. Uh, a little bit of his bio is in the live chat. What he's done, where he's at, what he's got for evidence without getting all the details. Um, right. But unfortunately, we won't hear that testimony. So, and then let's just jump over to vaccines in general. Like you said, when, when, let me breathe a little bit here. When Kennedy tried to get Fauci to f show him where's a double-blind placebo study on vaccines, he wasn't just talking about the COVID vaccine, Mike. He was talking about all vaccines ever produced. He said, show me a double-blind placebo study on a vaccine. No, right. He's it, was, it was all vaccines. It wasn't just all. That's right. right. And Fauci, when you listen to RFK talk about it, right, he says... <laughs> It was so obvious that he was lying. I mean, he was basically yes. like, oh, yeah, yeah, hold on. The, oh, we have it right here. Oh, wait a minute. I don't have it. We'll, we'll send it to you. And he never did. No, you know. <laughs> oh, I, that's, that's, like, you know that's, that's like your tax sheet. I ha Wait, I have my returns, right? Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll send them to you. Don't worry. You'll get them. Yeah. Huh? And you know that, that Kennedy sued him. That He sued him, and that's when the truth came out. He didn't have right. it. Right. He had to sue him. He said, I had yeah. to sue him. They would not provide the evidence that they said they had when i spoke right. to him they said no problem we'll get it to you well they were lying of course he was lying yes yes and you also have the former vp dr michael yeaton of pfizer who i don't know if you've heard of him but um he's come right out and said that there, there is no pandemic there never was statistically speaking you know the death rate the infection rate the Everything was right early on. Early on, he said this has all been made up. Of course, he's former VP of Pfizer, but you never hear about him. You hear about Boris. What was his name again? Uh, Bor Borlis, Borlis, right? Borla. Borla. He's a Borla. Borla. B o u r l a. Borla. Yeah. Right. right. 
Guess what? He's not even an MD. He's a veterinarian. I know. Yeah, he's doing yeah, well. You can't make this up. That's why I said at the, at the at the top of my list of of live chats is we're living in clown world. You can't make this up. It's so preposterous. And that the people, here's the problem. Mainstream media sponsored by Pfizer is just like you you pronounce it better than me, Goebbels, right? The minister, yeah, senator, Gerbils, minister, Gerbils, for, Gerbils, Gerbils. Gerbils. Like okay, Gerbils. like a gerbil. Gerber food. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That way. Yeah. What did he? Gerbils. What did he say? Right. He said, "Say a lie often and loud enough, and people will believe it's well, true." That's, what that's, what that's, the about, that's what R.K. Jr. was saying about the yes. being an anti-vaxxer. All you have to do is say someone's an anti-vaxxer enough, and the people will believe. Oh, they must be an anti-vaxxer. They must be crazy. They must right, not, and then, with the, the Democrats, the lie they perpetuate, uh, perpetrate along with their friends in the media, is that someone's an anti-vaxxer. So when someone thinks about that, when the average Joe who doesn't follow things as closely as we do, right. that's how they that's how they get these lies to spread. People follow that's stuff right. as closely as you and me and Daniel and others who listen to my podcast. This stuff would never, you know, work. But they know most right. people don't follow things very closely. Most people are not going to take. We saw this during COVID. Five minutes, ten minutes to go investigate anything on their own. They're just not. Right. They'll just take the word of the news agency that they listen to. And so when they say someone's an anti-vaxxer, that says to the to, to the to the layperson that this person doesn't believe in medicine. Right? They don't believe in medicine. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. and they're nuts because you have to be kind of crazy not to believe in medicine, not to believe doctors and so on, science and so on and so forth. So that's what they get through to people, right? And even I didn't realize that that you know RFK has all of his vaccines other than COVID, and that his family, his children, have all their vaccines other than COVID, and that he took the flu shot. Something I've never actually done for twenty right. years. No one, once again, that is not anything that's reported when you when when a, a news article is written about RFK Jr. Now I'm not a journalist, so. The journalist's job is to actually contact RFK and say, well, they call mm. you an anti-vaxxer. Do you, have you had your vaccines? Oh, yeah, I've had all my vaccines. My kids have had all my vaccines. So, Have you ever seen one story in which the mainstream liberal media calls RFK Jr. an anti-vaxxer where they put that information? None. Ever. That's why I didn't even know it. But they purposely omit the truth. They omit the facts that don't uh, allow them to push their narrative as effectively as they want to push it. That's what they do. Right. And they don't tell us that this recent gene bioweapon, I'll call it, I I stick with Dr. David Martin on that, created by DARPA uh, and and, in gain of function, creating the virus. But they don't tell us that. They also don't tell us that what? That they had to change the definition of vaccine to claim that this was a vaccine, the coronavirus jab. We talked about that yesterday. And so you get Debbie Schultz, whatever her middle name is, Wasserman, and it's like, what? What did you say, Wasserman? Because it's all propaganda. But they do this to create sound bites that they can replay. You see, that's why they do it. And then they'll play that just like Goebbels said. They'll play those sound bites over and over again. They'll post it. They'll do whatever, like as if it's truth. I mean, you know who's really good? Well, the Democrats are very good at that because they're also backed by – I say they're good at it because they're backed by 90% of the media. Right. It helps them. But uh, who's uh, another politician who's very good at that is, is Gavin Newsom. 
who says the mm-hmm. opposite of the truth, but he's very consistent with telling his lies. He's very consistent right. in his lies, right? And we say, if you're telling the truth, you don't have to, if you don't have to make things up, it's easy, just tell the truth. You never have to forget the truth, right? And, or remember the truth. You have to remember the truth. Well, what, what Gavin Newsom does is the opposite. He just repeats the same lie, but very accurately all the time. And it's an amazing kind of gaslighting, you know, where he'll say, he'll just lie about, let's say, the Florida law that says, you know, they're not going to have pornography in schools. And he'll call it like, or, or teach kindergartners about sex change operations. They'll still say, you know, don't say gay. You can't say gay. They're teaching the, 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 uh, the homophobes in Florida, led by the chief homophobe DeSantis, are making it illegal to say the word gay in school. And, uh, and uh, gay bashing and and people will believe it right people believe that lie and it's the same lie over and over again well trump also is a master at the ad hominem attacks just just garbage you know that's why i can't stand i've never i've always thought he's a career criminal and i've never boondoggled by him and to hear him go after DeSantis the way he does is just more the same i mean there's just more the insanity the clown world but unfortunately, there's a lot of people I, you know, who are frankly just trying to survive, living paycheck to paycheck, and they hear the sound bites. They don't even have time to really dig in because they're so busy. You know, they have kids and they're trying to work and support the family, and and both parents are working. So this is part of the way that they've basically destroyed American culture and the family unit. And then the kids are in daycare and they're hearing. You know, transitioning to all the woke propaganda and the, you know, trans message and everything. It's, it's all about the, it's, it's intentional. It's all about breaking down, destroying and creating, well, trauma in order to, to basically control people. You know, you, you create enough trauma, enough fear, people will, will reach back to the government for answers. And that's what they did during COVID. They, right. they frightened the crap out of everybody. And, and fortunately, you and I, I mean, you've made it your business and I've, because I'm disabled and I'm home and I'm housebound, I have all the time to do the research. If I was working on the tractors like I was, sometimes we're working four twelves, you know, even five days a week, you know, 10 hour days. And then I would have my ranch and my work. I didn't even have a TV like I told you yesterday because I was so busy, but I also would rather be out in the ranch doing my projects or sharpening the chainsaw blades in the shop or making repairs on equipment in the shop I had, you know, but so I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't have known, well, I would have known a fraction of what I know now about these issues or anything else I've learned in the meantime. So I try and, I mean, I have a sister, Lynn, my sister came up as a, uh, uh, x-ray tech, ultrasound tech. Now she's in administration. She's totally on board with the mainstream medicine, of course. She's been indoctrinated. You know, my own doctor, I, that, we stopped talking to one another because he kept trying to push a vaccine on me. And I'm like, look, I, I have no interest in that. He goes, oh, I want to send someone by and get your blood tested. I'm like, I don't need it. He goes, well, why are you calling me? I said, because the insurance to get the compression socks. That's it, Doc. You know, I, I really don't believe in all this other Western medicine. I'm, the other thing is talk about the science. Let's talk about, you know, Dr. Senna from MIT talking about 
eliminating all the things that destroy your gut flora where your immune system it's so important that your your gut flora is not destroyed and you're not not ingesting all those chemicals and uh, from water from food from cosmetics your skin absorbs mike our skin absorbs everything we put on it you know so you know when you use unadorm deodorant that has aluminum Talking, let, that, let me just finish with the adjuvants, the vaccine adjuvants, mercury is known to cause autism. That's why they took it out. Yeah. Now they use aluminum, which again crosses the blood brain barrier. And we know about Alzheimer, but there's, there's that, that's another thing that's never been thoroughly tested on aluminum and autism. You go to the NIH library, and I found an article in PubMed talking about aluminum, a possible cause for autism. But again, just like there's a no double-blind uh, placebo study, they haven't thoroughly studied aluminum as an adjuvant and whether or not it is a real cause of autism. But remember what RJ, I'm sorry, Kennedy said was he said that the woman who dogged him, who had won $20 million for injury to her son, from vaccines, that's the one who opened his eyes up. And then he joked it was the worst career movie ever made. But this man is gone before the lion's den. You know what I mean? These, these and you know, you got to hand it to Massey. What's Massey's first name, Mike? Is it Ed Massey? I can't remember. The uh, senator who stuck up for him and pulled forward the studies that supported. Oh, Massey's he, been great. Massey. He, yes. Uh, uh, Thomas Massey. Thomas. Thomas. Massey. Okay. He's been great. He really has. All along, he's the one. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, he's been he's been he's been great. Uh, he's he's usually the he's usually right on the mark about everything, you know, and uh, and was really one of the best during COVID, also, of calling out their COVID bullshit. So, you know. Man, didn't you love him when, when he's yeah. the one who called for a roll call vote when they said it was a parliamentarian or whatever? Any well, of those? Yes, exactly. He's, exactly. he's one, the only, well, there was only two Congress people, from what I understand, senators at the time, and he was one of them called for a roll call vote so that it was on record who was voting for what. And, of course, it was an oral nay-yay because they didn't want to be held accountable, you know. And then the last thing is you talk about our court. Let's talk about our courts real quick. Sotomayor saying that all these kids are in the hospital from COVID. Total fabrication, mm-hmm. right? Remember that? And this, this goes on. It's like intentional propaganda because she has a staff they have to know better again they get sound bites to instill what fear demoralize destabilize so they can manipulate and it's going to like like remember what gates said with melinda gates bill melinda oh the next one that'll get their attention right see this is frightening what's going to happen to people they're going to be and and they're going to probably do the same require masks and vaccines or people lose their job and then next thing you know you you have a choice you know do you you support your family you go get vaccinated how many people i only i can only imagine got vaccinated who were coerced into it and then had vaccine adverse events or family members or their immune system is breaking down because of it you know it's 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 i it's that when you're Think about the, the way the masks affect children, the negatives of, of wearing masks, the reduction of oxygen, the increased CO2, what breeds in a mask. 42 studies on LifeSite News that masks do not stop a respiratory aerosol virus and, uh, and, and, anyway, and 32 studies 
citing all the negative effects of wearing one. And we force those on children and on people of all ages. This is, uh, not to mention the suicides, the alcoholism, the everything that... We know the, everything the, that happened, Bill. We just need accountability now for everything that happened. For the people who did this to us and to society. Yeah. There needs to be some kind of accountability. And that's that's always been the question we're asking, is that when is that about accountability coming? And it becomes more frustrating the more we find out how nefarious all of this stuff was, right? We know we find out more about Fauci and his, his strong-arming people to say what he wants them to say, otherwise he withhold their money and their funding. And even the system, think of the system, Bill, that allows for that kind of, uh, you know, uh, conflict of interest, right? right? Where this guy is controlling the narrative, right? He's the doctor that's front and center, put there by Trump. Once again, I want to remind everybody, won't matter to the cult, but to people like you, I know you understand that. He uh, he put Fauci front and center, and this is the guy who's basically controlling the narrative, controlling the policy, and he's also controlling the purse strings, and that's a problem. Why is that? Why was that even allowed? Once again, that's on Donald Trump. He should have known all of that. Well, Trump Trump is infamous for saying one thing. And then you look at his henchman he puts in charge from Alex Azar. Oh, yeah, the, the, the drain to... the swamp bullshit. Wait a minute. Yeah. Bill, remember, people seem to forget conveniently. The Trump cult conveniently forgets. What, when did Mexico pay for the wall? Yeah. yeah. It wasn't that his two biggest campaign promises in 2016 were drain the swamp. Mexico was going to build a full wall. Both broken. Yeah. Well, he, he also uh, chides uh, the san the sanctimonious. He calls him for saying, "Oh, it'll take four years to get this done, or eight years." He goes, "I'll have it done within weeks." I mean, you didn't get anything done in four years other than give a tax break to the rich and brag no, about it. Santos, make sure he he brings that up. You already had yeah. you already had four years. This might work if someone hadn't yeah. already had four years, but you yeah. already had four yeah. years. So if you can do it in two weeks, why can't you do it in four years? It's, it's a, he's a bullshit artist, but it doesn't matter. Exactly. He's always cult been that. members who believe he was so extraordinary for four years that he needs four more. Oh, this, this guy was such a coward, he wouldn't go to, through the draft because he supposedly had bone spurs, yet he, he chastised John McCain for getting when he got shot down and captured and that he... You know, and that, I mean, he, he it's a despicable person. And it, it's amazing to me, not to mention, as I said, he destroyed the task force on corruption here in Connecticut, fired Deidre Daly, and I was told not to call anymore. And when I went to the DOJ, they wouldn't meet with me versus her indicting and convicting the, the CPA. My father's probate matter went to prison. So there's a huge difference. And then, he, of course, he trumps about, you know, Solving sex trafficking? No, his DOJ shut down the investigation into the Catholic Church, as a matter of fact. One month after Letitia James sued the Buffalo Diocese for failure to protect children and financial improprieties. He's a complete liar and a pathological liar and a hypocrite. And then you, you talk about Epstein and his connections. And what he did do, apparently in 2020, thinking of, of, of the movie and Khabib's, I, I the star in the movie, Caviezel, is that yes. how it sounds? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, Trump, this is all PR. He did, I contend, although resources were allocated, I'm sure. He did sign a bill. Uh, I, I looked it up. I can't remember the exact bill 
uh, it had to do with uh, going after child sex trafficking on some level. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, you have the Human Health Services uh, whistleblower, Tara Lee Rodas, who recently testified to that clearly that hasn't worked because she said that the U.S. government at the border has become fully involved in sex trafficking. That was her testimony before Congress. Do you recall hearing her? Yes. Right. So if what Trump was doing was in any measure effective that Billy signed three years ago, how could that still be happening? Right. You know, so, so you know, Jim Caviezel, I mean, I think he has good intention, of course. But let's look at something else. That movie is just the beginning because we, we want to talk about Colombian cartels, yes. Mexican cartels, yes. But how about the cartels that right here, whether it's the Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, the U.N., got busted for sex trafficking, the child protective services, child abuse issues that happens there, the uh, Boy Scouts, the universities like Penn State. Um, all this is covered up, Mike, on the regular. You know, um, you, you mentioned Dynacorp. Remember, the, you got the weapons industry. And, and the, these are people at the top of U.S., and you, oh, oh, also Tedros, the World Health Organization, Andrew Bridgen talked about that in, in, in front of the UK Parliament, uh, the sex trafficking issues they had, the, the right. World Health Organization, how that was covered up. This is like, Mike, we're ruled by corrupt elite predators, you know, on all levels. But, right. This is well, an accident. Uh, look, the fact of the matter is that you can't, uh, you know, actors, people in Hollywood, Yep, um, too. don't follow politics that closely. They really right. don't. They like to comment on it, and it's often mm -hmm. from the left-wing side. Obviously, Jim Caviezel at least isn't a left-winger, but when it comes to, like, he doesn't really... You know, Trump shows up at one of his private screenings and watches the movie and claps and says how emotional it is and how much it got to him, and he's going to make sure he takes care of the situation and and uh, cuts, you know, and really goes, goes strong after a child sex traffickers if he wins but mm -hmm. then we we can talk about he had four years it's not like child sex trafficking is a new thing now like it wasn't around in 2016 he did nothing for four years and then there's also the other stuff we know he was epstein's friend we know desantis never knew epstein we know that uh you know bill if we ever find out that that client list i'm sure trump would be on it i know desantis well, wouldn't be that's for sure well maria farmer who was into, she was one of the victims, uh, groomed and, and victimized, uh, Epstein and Klan. She, um, uh, Whitney Webb interviewed her on Limited Hangout. You can check out Whitney Webb's site, interviews with Maria Farmer. Maria Farmer said, Ivana Trump, that's the mother, right? Not Ivana. Mm -hmm. The mother's Ivana, right. I believe. Ivana Trump went out with Gusleen Maxwell and recruited girls as young as 12 years old to bring back to quote unquote, talent parties as young as 12 years old to parties for Epstein and Trump. Right. That's what she testified to. You want to know what really happened? Like you said, if Gasleen's in jail for sex trafficking, where are all the customers? Where are the Johns? That address of course. Was, of exactly. Course. If there was this big sex ring, child sex right. ring right. that she and Epstein ran, where are all the people who, where are all the people who are participants? Exactly. <laughs> There couldn't have been a Epstein and and uh, and Maxwell could not have done any damage if there weren't any clients. They were clients. <laughs> Who are they? Precisely, precisely. 
and and there's nowhere that Clinton goes without the Secret Service. Nowhere that Trump will go now or ever went without the Secret Service. Prince Andrew, they have the Royal Secret Service. I forget what they call it. I don't think they call it Secret Service. I have another name. But the point being is these are people. Of, not only that, if if you're um, you know, a high roller and you have a lot of money and you're flying on private jets, chances are you have security with you, right? I mean, you're going to have security because you could be abducted and put up for ransom. So this, this is a, none of this has happened in a vacuum, right. you know? And that's why uh, Whitney Webb calls it one nation under blackmail. You know, <laughs> we're living in the, in the, where the criminals are running the, running the, the, the insane asylum, you know, planet Earth, literally. Um, and then the whole thing, um, uh, adrenochrome, that is a real thing. That's been a practice you can find way back thousands of years, years you know, child sacrifice on altars and adrenochrome, you know, bleeding out kids and sick, 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 cultural satanic things, right? Well, we know that there's churches of Satan all over this country. The second largest congregation is in Newtown, Connecticut. Right where I am, right here, right in my own backyard. I mean, that's well known. Um, the, 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 it's not like the, the Satanists have gone away, you know. And so why would we think that when, when you look, oh, here's Mike, we'll talk about another time. I know it's we're getting late and everything. There's a gentleman who's died in 2021. He was an ex-CIA. His name was... Um, uh, Robert David Steele. That's not Christopher Steele of the Steele dossier. That's right, different right. Steele, yeah. right? Right. Robert David Steele, retired CIA. He was chief counsel on the International Tribunal for Natural Law. You know, you have common law that comes from England. Case law is carried on the bench. Natural law is your God-given rights. That's natural law. So the, he was chief counsel on the International Tribunal for Natural Law. Retired CIA. Oh my God, Mike! Uh, uh, tomorrow, remind me. Well, I have a link, and there's an embedded video of him speaking about child sex trafficking and about the numbers of kids that go missing every year and the cults that are all behind this. I mean, they know. The people at the top know this doesn't happen without them knowing it. FBI, DOJ, just like they knew about Nasser forever and they buried those girls first six girls who went talked about Nasser. Turned out another seventy girls were abused, some as young as ten committed suicide and Tulsa Gabbard talked about how after NASA got put in jail hundred and seventy five years and how the criminals need to be prosecuted. She was talking Tulsi was talking about the FBI agents that buried those original reports from those six girls. So the FBI knows about the church, the FBI you can be sure not only does Secret Service know about Clinton and Trump and whoever else, but also, don't forget, when they tell me they didn't raid for evidence of uh, Epstein's townhouse in Manhattan given to him by Leslie Wexner, tell me they didn't go to St. James Island, the CIA, or somebody, and, and get everything they could out of pedophile land. They have the documents, Mike. They know who the people are. They know who the... They, they buried... My understanding is... Leslie's address book is under seal for a hundred years, just like they want to do with the vaccine uh, initial trials. Remember, they wanted to seal those for 75 years, 55, 75 years. There's a reason they try and do that in court. Or they yeah. see, and of course. part of the problem, 
right? The judiciary goes along with it. Right. That's what I mean. We're running, running. It's, it's just, anyway. All right. So yeah, no, I just want to get to a couple other things. Then I'm yeah, I know you do. Things. Yeah. But um, thanks. I appreciate the call as always. You know, yeah. And good talk. I, Thank I think you. We, we, thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. I really do. Again. Um, and of course, we need to see some accountability on all this. We, you and I and all of us on this podcast for the last year and a half have talked about all the horrible things these people have done. And it's just, and we could talk about this stuff until we're blue in the face, and often we do. But until there's some accountability on all of this, it's just, it's, once again, they'll, they'll do it again. If not them, people like them will do it again in the future. And it's this constant, we've talked about this in regards to the COVID stuff, but also, and the, and the, the mainstream media and the way they allow it to happen and perpetrate and, and uh, continue to perpetuate. I, I think I say perpetrate because I think of them as perpetrators. They're all perpetrators, but they perpetuate these lies in this narrative. Someone put up a, this is very interesting on Twitter. It would say, you know, it's a, a weather person and it's a map of the country. I think this is either New Zealand or Australia. I'm not quite sure where, but there's a map. They put two maps, a photo uh, a uh, snapshot of two different maps, one from 2017 and one from this year. And, you know, it's one of those maps that you'll see on television on the weather where they'll put the temperatures and then the higher temperatures they'll put, in, you know, the red and the lower temperatures in orange and green. Well, the top map from 2017 has these temperatures. They're all in in Celsius and they're fairly yeah, you know, warm to very warm, right? 30, 33, 31, 32 on uh, the coasts, 20, 26. But the map is green. The whole map is green. They didn't put any red colors. So they have the the numbers, but not any colors. Then the bottom snapshot is from this year. So five years later, and the numbers are actually lower. So the temperatures in the in the top uh, graphic, which is all in green, range from like 26 to 33 Celsius. In the bottom shot, the temperatures range from like 22 to 28. These aren't <laughs> in the 70s and 80s, basically. And the whole map is red, like dark red. And we're seeing more and more of this, where like these normal summertime temperatures are being shown on these weather maps in like this dark crimson red as though it's the earth is burning to death and this is more the propaganda that these climate change wackos use and these left-wing climate change wackos who run these television stations and the media outlets say you know what let's put the numbers in red let's make them as dark red as possible once again you can take this as an extension of the covid fear and hysteria the way the left-wing media was able to scare the shit out of people right and they're doing remember the msnbc and cnn did it right with their death ticker that scared the shit out of people watching what scares the shit out of people more than watching a death ticker going up and up and up and up and now they're doing it of course with the weather maps where they just put these red colors these dark red colors as though the earth is burning to death this is propaganda this is the way you use propaganda to push a certain narrative and a false narrative. Because here's the thing. If your narrative wasn't false, if it was true, you wouldn't have to propagandize in it. You wouldn't have to do any of that. You would just be able to state the facts. 
but they can because look at that weather map. Once again, we knew with COVID, it was all lies. They were inflating. So if they gave the real numbers, they wouldn't be high enough to scare anybody. If they gave the real mortality rate, it wouldn't be able. They wouldn't be able to scare anybody. So they had to lie, right? Well, now the same thing with this climate change. If they just said temperatures are going to range between twenty four and twenty eight. People would say, okay, that's nice. So they have to put these red colors to make it look scary. This is more of the propagandizing of society. This is the way they make people believe the false narratives, such as RFK Jr. is anti-vax. That's the way they do it. And so we see this propaganda. It's the same propaganda, whether it's RFK or COVID or, or temperatures and climate change. It's the same game they play. They play psychological games. It's all psychological. The map is red. The the death tickers on the screen, right? It's the same. It's the same psychological game they play in order to push their narrative and scare people into believing the narrative, not the actual facts. I don't know how many people have been following this. I'm not a big person. I'm not a big, I have to admit. I don't hate it. I'm just not a big country music person. Um, But there's a country music singer. His name is Jason Aldean. And he just put out a song, um, which is basically called, I believe, not in the, try that, it's called Try That in a Small Town. And what the song is basically about is, you know, look at all this, all this, like, not just crime in big cities, but like people not caring about each other in big cities, the way they do in small towns. People in small towns tend to look out for each other more than in big cities, which has always been true, really. I've known that because I know this because I like get outside of my three block radius. Let me tell you something. I've lived in one of the biggest cities in the world, New York City, and I've lived in one of the smallest cities in the world, Arizona city. So I've lived in a city of 12 million and I've lived in a city of 3000. Not many people can say that. So I've lived in the big city and the very small rural town where you have to drive 15 miles to go to a grocery store or a gas station. I've been there. I've lived in both. And he's right, Jason Aldean. People do look out for each other more in small towns. They just do, just the way things are. And so he put out a song, Try That in a Small Town. Now, when he put out the song, no one cared. But then he put out a video, a music video. And in the music video, he shows like images, I believe, of like small towns. And then he shows the images of the 2020 riots, right? The George Floyd riots. And juxtaposition of the two things, of, of how the people in the small town look out for each other. The people in the big city don't as much. And you have all this burning and looting and destroying of big cities where in small towns, people, you know, look out for each other and and people in small towns are allowed to defend themselves. So if you try this kind of thing in their small towns, they're going to be able to defend themselves. Right. This is all truth. These are all facts. And the left went crazy. Over this, over putting in images of Rodney King, not Rodney King, sorry, the riots from 2020. I, I can't keep track of my left-wing riots, of uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter riots of 2020. 
And uh, people were upset saying, you know, it was racist and he was pro-lynching and all this nonsense, of course, they make up their asses. And so now there's big controversy over this song. Um, and now the country music television, CMT, uh, pulled the video. And now people, just like with the Bud Light situation, people are saying enough is enough. We're not going to allow you to do this. We're not going to allow you to cancel people. We're not going to take this wokeness. So basically, country music television angered a lot of fans when they pulled the Jason Aldean video. But the network could have learned that Americans are sick of forced agendas if they simply paid attention to Bud Light, according to a financial guru. What we're seeing as a trend in America is that people are exercising their free speech on businesses one way or the other. Entrepreneur Ted Jenkin told Fox News Digital. When businesses decide to take these actions, they also need to be responsible for the consequences, he said. We saw it with Bud Light and other brands, and this will now happen most likely to CMT. Jenkin, the CEO of Oxygen, Oxygen, O capital XY Gen Financial, who consoles business owners and hosts the Shrimp Tank podcast, believes that CMT honchos could have learned from Bud Light that woke policies aren't always good for business. I don't know whether businesses should be involved in politics, and that's the real decision they have to make, Jenkins said. Do we want to take a political stand or not? Or are we in the business of selling a product or servicing or delivering a service? So now these country music fans are very pissed off at this wokeness, at the woke cantling of everything. You would think the country music television wasn't run by woke left-wingers. So either they're run by woke left-wingers or by feckless idiots who are afraid of the woke left, who are afraid of this very small but very loud minority. You talk about loud minority. It's not like it's a loud 40% or 35%. It's like a loud, like, 2%. And they're incredibly loud and obnoxious, and they scare feckless CEOs. But what's happening now is you're getting people, conservatives, like I saw a Bud Light saying, you know what? We're not going to buy Bud Light anymore. You know what? You, you put on, you put a woman, you put a guy, a man who's playing a girl, making fun of women, and we're not going to buy your product. Okay. Uh, if you take off a video, which is a great song, by the way, it was like number one in the charts. He's doing great. He's making lots of money and all this attention the left wing wokes is a bring to this is just making it more popular. Um, that's always the effect of their bullshit. They, it's always the opposite of what they want, obviously. They have brought attention to it. Look, someone like me who's not a country music fan, I'm thinking of downloading the damn thing. And a lot of people are doing that. And now there's going to be this boycott of country music television. And we saw this with Bud Light. It actually worked. Bud Light's profits dropped 25%. They went from the number one to the number two beer. They've been number one for a long time. And they lost a quarter of their profits. And I think Modelo took over the number one song. So, and then you have, of course, morons like on The View, the women on The View, the low IQ women who are on The View, and someone like uh, uh, Joy Behar, a total moron, who said, oh, these people in small towns should, should, uh, should love big cities because if it wasn't for big cities, they wouldn't have anything. You talk about this ridiculously elitist, idiotic. First of all, it's, it's bat crap stupid because the coasts, the elite, the, the liberal elites on the coast would have no food. They'd have no beef. 
that have no milk, that have no eggs, if not for the farmers and, and the majority of this country that does not exist on the coast. So she's a total fucking idiot to say that. But of course, it's an incredibly liberal, wealthy, elitist thing to say. Who came up with the term flyover states, liberal elites on the coasts? So it's a combination of elite, of incredible elitism, disgusting elitism, and just totally being a total fucking moron and not knowing the way anything works, not knowing the way, uh, you know, uh, commerce works, not understanding how important the farmer is, the little guy is to the people on the coast having their cushy lives in their luxury condos. So a moron like that, like that says this, and you know, this is where this is coming from. This is where this is coming from. And they're afraid. The liberal elites are afraid of people telling the truth about their shitty cities, their shithole cities that are in doom loops that are dying because of liberal policies. So when Jason Aldean makes a video like this, once again, this art just reflects life. Okay, art just reflects life. So Jason Aldean is just pointing this out in his video. That there's a, a, a great difference, a huge contrast between the big city and the small town. Hey, what a shock. I know this might shock liberals who have never lived in a small town like I have. When I lived in Arizona City, there was a guy who lived across from, from, from my house. I had a roommate. We had a house. And across from us was this guy who was an ex-cop. And he had a German Shepherd. And his garage was, was weapons. Okay. Um, but, I mean, well, I'll talk about Oppenheimer in a second, but would have made Oppenheimer blush, the kind of ammunition <laughs> he had in his garage. So he had everything. He had guns, he had bullets, he had whatever you need, basically, if you need to defend yourself or defend your home. And I remember at first I was like, coming from a big city, I was like, God, I don't know if I want to even talk to this guy. I really don't know if I want to get to know this guy. But you live across the street from someone. And because we lived across the street from this guy who lived in this small town, he looked out for our place. If something seemed out of sorts, he would tell us about it. And his dog, his German Shepherd, was incredible. I mean, this dog was the most well-trained dog I've ever seen in my life. Right? It was crazy. Um, and so, you know, you live, you live across the street from someone and you kind of – have to get to know them. And the more I got to know the guy, the more I liked him. And all those prejudices I brought with me about small town people, about people who believed in the Second Amendment, about people who had weapons and guns and, and you know, believed in self-defense, that all went out the window because you met this guy and you realized that if you needed him, he was going to defend you. Okay. And uh, he was going to defend your property because you were a neighbor. And so your property kind of becomes their property. That dog would defend us if he told it to. So you got to know him and you realize, my God, all this, I'm an, what an idiot I am of like having these preconceived notions about somebody. And then once you get to know them, realizing that they're good people, right? Um, good old boy, just, you know, not, what's the, what's the Dukes of Hazard song? You know, not, uh, meaning any harm. Basically, that's what it was. I mean, this was an ex-cop who believed in the Second Amendment, the right to self-defense. Um, and, you know, he was a good guy and always looked out for us. So that 
is what the liberal elites like Joy Behar will never know because they just like to continue their um, prejudice of small towns and people who they see as beneath them. Believe me, they see these people as beneath them. They do. And they prove it with their actions and their words, such as saying these are flyover states or they need us. We don't need them. They need us. When, of course, it's very much the opposite, very much the opposite. Believe me, the people in the middle of this country, the farmers could do without us. The liberal elites could go away forever. These big look, the proof is these big cities are deteriorating, but the small towns aren't. So it's absolute insanity to allow this very, very small minority get their way. And more and more now we're seeing that there are people out there who simply, you know, are not going to allow them to get their way anymore. And we're seeing that now with parents who are finally standing up and saying, you know, we're, we're important. We, 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 we are parents and we decide what's best for our children, not, not the government, not Joe Biden, not Gavin Newsom. And we're seeing that now in uh, a California school district in Chino Valley. They just passed a parental notification rule regarding gender identity. So a California school district, this is Chino Valley, adopted a pro-parent transparent policy that requires its schools to notify parents if their child expresses a gender identity that is different from their biological sex. The Chio Valley Unified School District passed a measure on a four to one vote after a heated four hour board meeting with nearly 90 speakers that saw the state superintendent kicked out for refusing to sit down after his time expired. School board president Sonia Shaw lauded the vote as an important move to protect the rights of parents. As a parent, we were shut down, she said. We tried to have conversations. They pushed us out to politicians. I'm a soccer mom. I'll say that. I'm a fitness trainer. I have no desire to ever be in this seat. But the person that I unseated is a disgruntled ex-politician, and she's upset that we unseated her, the parents. Stop assuming that parents are dangerous. That's reckless. And I will say this, because a household is affirming or not affirming right now, they are saying non-affirming households are dangerous, she continued. Where do you get that? Uh, Shaw continued, actually, if you ask me, and I've listened to tons of parents, it's actually very safe to be non-affirming, loving, caring household, because guess what? They're going to provide the necessary needs that they need to be able to get better. For me, that is important. Bring the parent in. So the new policy mandates that the district must, the school district must inform parents in cases where a child expresses a desire to be identified or treated as a gender different from their biological sex, intends to use a bathroom and athletic facilities of the opposite sex, seeks a pronoun or name change, or if there are mental health concerns with the child, such as potential suicidal thoughts. The move comes amid retaliation from Newsom against conservative school board members in the state. On Thursday, Newsom followed through on threats to find the Temecula Valley Unified School District a million and a half bucks over claims the district banned a textbook because it mentioned gay rights activist Harvey Milk. Um, and by the way, that's not what happened at all. The parents decided that they didn't want the school district teaching about Harvey Milk because Harvey Milk was known at the time to have sex with underage people, right? 
And they felt that it wasn't good for the school district to teach about Harvey Milk. So they say it's unfortunate that Newsom and others have seized upon an action by the Temecula Valley Unified School expressly authorized by the California legislature and mischaracterized not only what has occurred, but why. Um, it was never his intention to assault anybody. It's always my intention to leave with civility. So basically, uh, they want the school. This this sounds very, I know this is very, very, very avant-garde. But they want the school to teach like uh, math, English, science, social studies. And they believe that if you're going to start teaching about other things, when already California is at the bottom of the education scale, right? If you want, actually, Florida's at the top. We know that. They're like number one education now. California's at the bottom. I don't know exactly what number, but it's towards the bottom, if not last. That maybe they should teach things like math and English and not be teaching about Harvey Milk. Maybe that's something the kids can look at on their own these days. Maybe if, the ch if someone gets old enough and they want to learn about Harvey Milk, they can go online and learn about Harvey Milk. Maybe parents, if they want to teach their kids about Harvey Milk, they can. Okay? But they don't feel that they should be teaching about Harvey Milk in elementary school. Elementary school. They chose not to adopt a new pilot curriculum and the supplementary textbook material that included milk was only one of several, several objections. But once again, this is Gavin Newsom saying he knows better than the, the school boards. He knows better than the parents. And what they really hate, as I just said before, we have parents who are now running for school board who are knocking out politicians and we're seeing parents taking over the school boards. And this enrages someone like Newsom who wants to control everything himself, who believes that politicians should decide what's best for kids, not parents. Oh, how's it going, Daniel? I finish up my walk for the day. Um, it's after midnight. <laughs> yeah, and of I'm, course. What I'm else is new? Home. What else is new? Almost home. Um, stopped at Bob's Donuts, got a crumb donut. Um, Oh, man, too much. you couldn't wait for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, I was thinking of a, an analogy to uh, our school system. Yeah, we would all like um, our uh, school systems to teach reading, writing, arithmetic, the basics, and to prepare our kids so they can go to college. This reminds me so much of McDonald's. Um, I'm old than you, so you don't, you don't remember McDonald's. Um, you can't uh, the the way it was when it first started. It made it made food like In and Out burgers um, even even better, um, and they they sold uh, hamburgers. Uh, there was one size hamburger, and that was it. Um, they sold shakes, and there was strawberry, chocolate, vanilla. Um, they sold sold Coca Cola, and I think that was it on the drinks. And they sold fries, and that's all they mm -hmm. sold. How many items are there on a McDonald's menu right now? And do any I think of them you could get a garden salad. No. Yeah. And pancakes and egg McMuffins and the list goes on and on and on and on. And it's all crap. 
that is what our school system is right now. Instead of just selling, and, and so you see in and out Burger doing booming business. I mean, I live, I live by the wharf and, and there's an in and out Burger there and I walk by that frequently and they've got people at the door all the time. McDonald's, they got drug dealers in, in front of theirs, everyone that I see around the city and nobody, and nobody's going into places. Um, it's, that's, that's, that's our education system right there. They're trying to do too much um, at, that we don't even um, um, want of them. And 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 they do it all poorly. And once again, you're talking about you're not talking about like if you're number one in education for a long time and you say, well, you know what? We're great at teaching the basics. We're going to add some stuff here. But when you're at the bottom, OK, of teaching uh, the, the the basics and you have been for a very long time uh, and your dropout rates are incredibly high, it's, it's not like time to add stuff. It's time to teach the basics and start making sure that these kids actually learn how to like, you know, read, write, do math, learn about American history. But when you talk about adding this kind of stuff to the curriculum, that's basically activism. That's what these people want to be. They want to be activists. And these politicians want to push their political agenda in the schools and onto the children. And these parents are finally saying, you know what, we're not having it anymore. So if we have to run the school board, we will. And when the parents run, they usually win. Yeah, um, I, I, I hope so. And I hope they're uh, asking the ex-school ex board members if they want cheese with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, we also know In-N-Out Burger in, in several states are not letting their employees wear a mask unless they have a valid uh, medical reason to wear them. You know, I hope yeah, that spreads um, to California, but it may never spread to California. Yeah, in, in and out Burger's been ahead of the curve as far as um, food businesses go and the whole mask business. They were, um, even in San Francisco, they were saying that um, they weren't going to, when, when the whole mask nonsense was, was happening, they, they were saying that they weren't going to kick anyone out of their restaurant for not wearing a mask. Right. Yeah, yeah they, did that, they did that very early on. Uh, and so I would just walk in there without a mask on and everyone would be horrified. <laughs> and I'd yeah, get my fries yeah. and my, my, or my strawberry shake and, then, and, and just leave with a big smile on my face, the only one in the entire place with, without a mask on their face. It's, a, it's an incredible experience. Yeah. No, they've, they've always been on the right side of things. And yeah. they've been some, one of the few corporations on the right side of, on the right side of history. So we should always support. Plus, it's a good product. It's a good hamburger. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, for you, so you sure. get the grilled cheese, right? Is that what you get? Yes, uh, sometimes I get the grilled cheese, but usually I'm there, there just for their strawberry shakes. They've got a, a, a weakness for strawberry shakes after 11 p.m. <laughs> yeah. I don't blame you. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I'm going to so, have so, one of those so, Bob's Donuts tomorrow night. I'll have yeah, one tomorrow night. I, I don't think I can go for two, two, two in, 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 in two days. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I wish our, our, wish our schools would, would, would follow the in and out model and, and they're following the McDonald's model. And, um, yeah. And, and then they did worse. They, they, they were, te were teleburgering it for the last two years. My kids were, you know. Teleburgering? Teleburger? Te teleburgering it. What teleburgering? Teleburgering. <laughs> they they 
they, they weren't doing in-school education. They, they were at home telecommuting. To, oh, to okay. Okay. And, and yes. So I'm combining the, 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 never mind. I think I'm getting it. I think I get it. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 I was just hoping for an immediate laugh because, you know, I never like to explain my jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, your joke, you know, it's, it's such a, I, I would like to call your humor dry. I don't know if it's, it, it's, it's not that it's, dry. It's not that dry. It's kind of obtuse. Obtuse. That's a great yeah. word for yeah. your humor. It's kind of like it's kind of like obtuse, but that's all right. Yeah, it's kind it's kind of like I'm planning this, and if you think about it a day later, you'll get it. <laughs> exactly. There you go. <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately for me, no one thinks about it a day later. <laughs> right. I'm going to talk about your uh, uh, your workplace there, Berkeley, soon. A few minutes here, we're going to start talking about Berkeley a little bit. So, what was that? Make sure you stay. Huh? What, what, what were you saying about Berkeley? I said, well, I'm going to be talking about Berkeley in a few minutes. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, an embar- what an embarrassing institution. Um, well, Berkeley he, plays more into Oppenheim, but I, did, I, did, I never realized that he, that he well, taught at Berkeley and, and was, uh, you know, doing research and developing, you know, the, uh, the split of the atom at Berkeley. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. So there yeah, are a lot yeah. of shots of Berkeley oh. and Oppenheimer. But of course, we're talking Berkeley in the in the like the the thirties, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had this um, um, the siren thing that went off um, every every time a um, back in the day, every time a a new element was discovered up at the labs. <laughs> That's you know that if there it was an amazing period that time for 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 science. Um, we haven't seen a period like that for for science. Except for maybe the um, the transistor and the miniaturization of the transistor. No, they went from they went from having scientists that are working on you know kind of very edgy, dangerous stuff like like the atom bomb, like splitting the atom, to scientists who wear masks because they're afraid of getting a cold. Kind of yes. not yes, exactly not, as not, courageous as they used to be. Yes, not only that. I mean, it was it was the whole modern era of physics. It was the era of quantum mechanics, you know, 1926 and this, 10 years mm-hmm. following that. It was the era of relativity, era era of relativity, the early tw- 20s or, or so. Um, it was the era of general relativity that came out a few later, years later. You know, it was a tremendously productive scientific period. It was the, it was the age of antibiotics not long after that. Um, we, we, our, our actual scientific growth, although technology has expanded, and like I said, uh, principally because of the, the transistor and the miniaturization of it, um, discovered by Shotsky. Um, and, but, you know, we haven't done much else besides miniaturized transistors <laughs> over, yeah, the last, over the last, you know, 70 years. Um, I know. Most, most of our medical science turns out to be shit. Um, after after it's been studied for significantly long periods, um, it's yeah, it's it's a shame. It's a shame what's what's happened to education, and we can see you know this is kind of um, maybe this is maybe this is the um, how should I say this? Maybe this is 
the, a turning point for education. I mean, they've debased themselves at, at, yeah. at Berkeley, um, and maybe that's going to produce a, a new enlightenment period in education because we've certainly gone through a dark age as these last three years, and it's been brewing for longer than three years um, as universities have allowed corporations to become more and more entangled in their research. Um, yeah, it's... Yeah, um, I, I hope we come out of the scientific dark age because it's just pathetic. It's pathetic to be around people that you know at Berkeley that they are shit for minds. I mean, these aren't these aren't top notch people. They got shit for brains, and they're, they're not scientists. They're careerists, and, and 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 I mean, I've got skill sets and a knowledge base that's you know 10 times wider and 10 times deeper than most of these people who are just going around kissing ass and and, yep. and at berkeley and just for the sake of getting promotions and they're idiots they're absolute idiots they really can't even do math at a high school level it's it's really incredible what politics combined with education has done to our education yeah. system over the last 70 years i mean it is just decimated it has really gutted the education out of education it has yeah it's 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 very sad when you look at what used to what what you know what what it used to be and where it is now what science used to be able to accomplish and what they're where it is now you know and as i'll get into in a second it's always been politics involved but right now we're seeing it's it's it's, it's i think it's worse you know than it's ever been and we're just not we don't have the the minds, the people who want to discover anymore, right? The people who are truly curious. What we have now, like you said, they're basically of like people just rubber stamping each other and never challenging each other. I mean, there was once again, I'll talk about Oppenheimer in a second. But there used to be great challenge. There used to be scientists used to challenge each other, challenge each other's theories, challenge each other's hypothesis, and what you got from that was much greater than what you get now where everyone is afraid to come out against the, you know, the prevailing narrative. Yeah. And the, the whole scientific review process is a joke. Um, scientific review didn't even exist back in Einstein's day. And it was, mm-hmm. um, well, well, actually it started in Einstein's day and someone, uh, a editor sent one of his papers that he sent in to, to a reviewer. And Einstein was so insulted by that move that he withdrew the paper. Um, and it turned out to be an excellent paper that was published every, and el- elsewhere. Um, the whole idea of, of peer review is, is a freaking joke. I mean, you get a bunch of idiots that will not admit that they are not qualified to review your paper, and they review it anyway because they simply don't want to admit that they're non that they're not qualified. Um, right. And, and this happens over and over and over again. Um, and then people end up submitting to a different journal. Um, they go through the same process until until basically by luck they hit reviewers that accept their paper. And even when those reviewers accept their paper, they are still shitty reviewers. Sure. Absolutely. It's, it's the, the whole process of scientific review is just a freaking joke. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I can't tell you how many papers I've reviewed where I've just said, I'm rejecting this simply because these idiots don't know how to math, do math and they don't know basic physics. And, and, um, and they're and they're drawing from this ignorance about basic math or basic physics, um, things that simply cannot be drawn from the physics or the math. And 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 I've seen papers that 
you know, people have cited over and over and over again, um, and, you know, in high impact journals. Um, and I'm sure those authors love all those citations and love that it was it was published in a high impact journal. And the paper turns out to be absolute shit on close examination by people who are actually qualified to review it after it's published. And that's when the review, real review process happens. Very few papers are ever read by anybody. If, if you write a paper and one person cites it, you're doing really well. <laughs> um, if a hundred people cite it, you know, you're doing exceptionally well with respect to, you know, counting reviews. That doesn't mean it's a good paper, though. <laughs> um, that just means that it means it most most times it means it titillated. And, and that's it. And, and then two years go by and, and someone someone finally, um, because they've got nothing better to do, um, writes a paper that refutes the first one because no one likes to do that. No one likes to say your paper is shit. Your baby is ugly. Nobody likes to do that. But after after it gets into the record, into the scientific record, and other people start citing it, eventually someone says, okay, I've got to do something about this begrudgingly. And they write a paper that says, you know, back two years ago, five years ago, 15 years ago, this paper that was that was accepted for publication and all of you assholes cited it was a piece of shit, and here's why it was a piece of shit, either offering up new empirical evidence or, or just on the basis of the theory that they used to try to justify the use of their data. And, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it, this isn't the way science used to be done. You, were, you would have been freaking embarrassed as hell to put out most papers, 99% of papers that are published. You would simply be embarrassed to do it. And instead, what people say is, oh, it got by the reviewers, so I'm no longer responsible for my own paper. That is the attitude that, that scientists take these days. Right. And, 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 and yeah, it's just, it's, we saw it during COVID, you know, how much this mattered, how much this degradation of our science mattered. Um, but it's been brewing for a long time, but it never caused near as much turmoil as it did over the last three years. Absolutely. Anyway, Daniel, anyway thanks for the call. Um, yeah, have a good night. This is perfect this is the perfect segue into Oppenheimer. But but if I have to uh, ask John if uh, John Williams and the Boston Pops are ready to play me in. Are you ready to play me in? Okay, here we go. Thank you. There we go. Okay, thanks. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. As I said at the beginning of the show, I had just seen Oppenheimer tonight. I mean, you know, finished watching it like an hour before the show started here. So it's a lot to take in, a lot to digest um, and to talk about without really thinking about because it's a very thoughtful film, a very deep thinking kind of a film. Of course, we all know who J. Robert Oppenheimer is. He... uh, developed the atom bomb, which we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, the film was a three-hour epic, basically about a lot more than just that, which is smart because we all know how that went. In fact, that's a very small part, small part of the film. Um, a large chunk of, the, of Christopher Nolan's film deals with uh, Oppenheimer's life and how he got to that point of being the guy who did this. And the race, of course, to to the atom bomb that the, the Germans were, you know, a year or two 
Oppenheimer, I believe, about a year and a half ahead of us, um, and to get to develop the bomb before they did during the World War. And how, of course, we know Germany, Hitler killed himself, and Germany dropped out of the war, but Japan kept fighting, and that's what led to Truman dropping the the atom bomb. But the film is much more interested in the man's life and who he was and how he got to that point and goes back and forth a lot in time. As you can imagine, a Christopher Nolan film is not going to be straightforward. He always likes to mess around with time and space, and it really works, I think, more in this film than in any of his other films. I found a lot of his other films to be incredibly confusing. I don't particularly understand them. This one is very easy to understand. It's his most accessible film, but he also uses time as we go back and forth in, in Oppenheimer's life from him as a, uh, you know, a, a student uh, in the 20s and 30s into working at Berkeley teaching where they also would uh, uh, research the atom and try to split the atom, try to figure out how to do it, how to develop um, this, this science that would lead to the development of the atom bomb. And of course, then um, his uh, little town that was built in New Mexico, where they did even more research and they built the bomb and they did the testing that would lead to, you know, uh, Truman uh, dropping the bomb. And of course, then a lot we don't know that happened after, which is his uh, relationship with a, 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 a guy named Louis Strauss, played by Robert Downey Jr., who will undoubtedly get another Oscar nomination, as so deservingly so. Downey Jr. is absolutely brilliant, as is Killian Murphy, as uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer. Um, but uh, his relationship with, uh, with Louis Strauss was quite complicated. Louis Strauss, based on his reputation, in about 1947, uh, decided to bring him into a, uh, a community where he would have his own house and he would help with, um, you know, um, basically development of the hydrogen bomb. So, but uh, the film really has a huge cast and most of them play doctors and scientists who were helping Oppenheimer develop the bomb. And much of it takes place in Berkeley and then in New Mexico in the town they built and all the doctors, the top doctors and scientists that Oppenheimer was hired to bring on. Um, hired by um, uh, Matt Damon's character. Matt Damon plays a general who hires Oppenheimer based on his reputation and brings him in to help develop the bomb and also builds this community for him and gives him all he needs in the desert of Mexico in order to build this. Uh, and all the doctors and scientists, and as I mentioned, a big part of this film is these doctors and scientists throwing theories at each other, trying to figure out exactly how to develop this bomb. And all of the, uh, this, this incredibly new technology that was just being developed. Um, and of course, before this, there was never any kind of a huge bomb that can be dropped that can destroy, you know, big chunks of, of civilization. And so the atomic bomb would then, of course, lead to the hydrogen bomb, which would lead to nuclear weapons and nuclear bombs. And how uh, I think th the main thrust of the film is how what Oppenheimer helped develop would change the world totally, because then it would become about bombs and arms races and who could build bombs and better bombs and bigger bombs. And also the, the, the conflict between these scientists led by Oppenheimer 
who are excited about the new science they're developing without really understanding the consequences of that technology and what it would lead to and how it would change the world. And we watch here through, through the film and the performance of Killian Murphy as he understands, as he begins to understand how, how deep this is and how, how devastating this is. And also his conflicted feelings about developing this bomb, which would then in turn kill 150 to 200,000 people, not just in real time, but then later on as well, people who were subjected to the bomb in Japan. Um, and also his um, hesitation to help with the hydrogen bomb, because of course he was afraid of what would happen. And we've seen his, his fears have been played out as to what would happen. And also the fact that he was then uh, persecuted by the U.S. government for having these conflicted thoughts and ideas about the hydrogen bomb and not being all in on the development of the hydrogen bomb the way he was the atomic bomb. And of course, then labeling him as a communist and having communist connections through early, you know, his, 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 his university studies and his friends and his connections and girlfriends and his wife played by Emily Blunt, Kitty Oppenheimer. Uh, and also a, a, uh, uh, drama that develops between him and the Robert Downey Jr. character played Louis Strauss, who has it in his head that uh, Oppenheimer has turned the scientific community against him, has it in his mind that he's turned people like Einstein against him, who were once his friends. But basically, much of Louis Strauss's problems come from his enormous ego and his chip on his shoulder he had about Oppenheimer as the film goes on it cuts back and forth between Oppenheimer's early days his development of the atomic bomb and also later on in the in the uh, in the early 50s when he had to defend himself um, from the House Un-American Activities Committee and the destruction of his reputation led by by Louis Strauss um, the film is amazing in many ways Yes, there is the incredible heart-pounding score that runs throughout the film. And of course, as the, as, the, as the bomb is developed and the tension leading up to the, you know, the, uh, the testing of this bomb, and what the film makes clear is that they didn't know. They, they were 99% sure when they pressed that button, when the bomb was tested in the desert of Mexico, that it wasn't going to destroy the entire world, but they didn't know for sure. Um, a line that's used in the film a lot is near zero, near zero chance the world will be destroyed. But there was this fear that of the unknown that this <laughs> bomb could spread and destroy the entire world. And so they didn't know it wasn't going to happen until they pushed that button and then realized that that wasn't going to be the case. But there's this incredible tension that leads up to that moment but also, what's really great about the film, and what really makes Christopher Nolan a great director, is that a lot of the film is very talky. There's a lot of conversation, especially when it comes to the stuff that happened after the atomic bomb, after Japan was bombed, and all of the politics involved, and all of the emotional, physical, psychological, and political tension that Oppenheimer had to go through, and the guilt that that was part of 
you know, him being part of this bomb, which ended up killing a lot more people than, of course, they originally estimated it was going to kill. Um, but I say that the stuff when you come to building the tension around the bomb, you know, and uh, and the testing and not knowing what's going to happen is a lot easier than the tension that Nolan is able to build just around the the drama around that and the emotional effect this had on Oppenheimer after and also all the politics and the the the, the talking that happens. A lot of the dialogue is also so edge of your seat stuff. I mean, you're into every word because Nolan is able to make it not just this talky film, but just incredibly cinematic around it all, around the score and the cinematography and going back and forth between the color imagery of most of the film and the black and white, which he uses when it comes to most of the Lewis Strauss stuff and the committee hearings and all of the stuff that's going on involving um, about the, the reputation of Oppenheimer afterwards. Uh, it's, it's just, you're into every word you're on your seat. And that is, I think the real accomplishment here is that the talky parts of it are so cinematic and also so well dramatized that we actually care. A lesser director would have fallen on his face trying to accomplish as much as, as Nolan accomplishes in this film. Um, a, a normal criticism may have been that it should have been much more around just around the development of the bomb and the use of the bomb and not all this politics and all the stuff that came after. But Nolan makes it so interesting and such high drama that we actually care. And a big reason why we care is because of Killian Murphy's uh, performance. I said Downey Jr. is great, too, as a two-faced Louis Strauss politician. But also... Killian Murphy is so fantastic in building up the the emotional drama and the emotional and the the guilt that Oppenheimer had over what this bomb did and what it would lead to. Right? There's actually a, one scene where we get Harry Truman played by Gary Oldman. Basically, it's a cameo. It's like a three minute scene where he calls in Oppenheimer. Um, of course, after the deed is done and the war is won and the bomb has been dropped and he wants to talk to him about developing the uh, the hydrogen bomb. And Oppenheimer uh, tries to convey <laughs> his uh, reservations about developing the hydrogen bomb. And at one point he says to uh, to Truman, I feel like I've had blood on my hands. And Truman, played by Gary Oldman, takes out his handkerchief and waves it at him sarcastically as to say, wave, you know, wipe the blood off your hands, you little wimp. And he says to him that the world doesn't really care. The people in Japan don't care about who developed or made the bomb. Not about you. They care about who dropped the bomb. And I did. And uh, it's that moment where you say, you know, this guy has incredible guilt over what he did. He was a scientist. And he was excited about atoms and about splitting the atom and about developing this bomb and helping his country, being his patriotic and helping end the war, but also all of the all the guilt that came because of the of the result of that. But there's there are no scenes in Japan, and there's been some criticism about not having any scenes of showing, you know, people in Japan 
dying and being killed by the bomb. But Nolan handles it in a much better way. If you want to see, you know, there's this thing going around called Barbenheimer, where they're showing Barbie and Oppenheimer and the same people seeing it the same day. A better double feature. I mean, that's great for PR reasons. But a better double feature is Oppenheimer and Hiroshima Monomore by Alan Resnay. If you want to see that, then you'll see about the effects of this bomb in, in, in the, on the people of Japan. But what Nolan does is he brings that guilt and anxiety into Oppenheimer's world in this country where there are scenes where he's kind of envisioning uh, the death and destruction that has happened. The, often the frame will start to shake in the background as Oppenheimer's talking as though there's a bomb going off around him. There's a scene where he's being applauded by all those scientists after the bomb is dropped and after war is won and they're, they're waving American flags. And as he's addressing this crowd and trying to be patriotic and tell them what a great job everyone's done, he's, he's envisioning and we're seeing it through Nolan's vision of, uh, of what he's actually thinking, which is of the death and destruction that this is wrought on the Japanese people. So I think Nolan does it in a much better way, a much better dramatic way in a more subtle way than just actually, you know, showing scenes in Japan. We understand the effect the bomb had. We don't need to see images of people dying in Japan. Uh, Nolan brings it into Oppenheimer's psyche. And a lot of this film is really about Oppenheimer's psyche and the excitement of developing this stuff as a real scientist who wants to further science and help his country. And then, of course, the incredible, the incredible guilt he has for what happened. So, I, look, I think this is a groundbreaking film. It's one of those films that is three hours. To me, it's like Apocalypse Now, The Godfather. You have to see it and you have to think about it and maybe see it a second or third time. And I think this is the kind of film that's going to resonate for a long time. I think this may be it, it, it's hard to say. Once again, I, it's so early. I just saw it a few hours ago. I wouldn't be shocked if this went down as one of the top 100 films ever made. It's, it's really that good. It's that cinematic. It's that powerful. Nolan has a real vision. And everything he's done up until now with his science fiction films, I think, has been preparing him for this, where he's making a film about a real person. You get the real measure of the man. Uh, I don't say I like Oppenheimer or hate him. I understand him. And I think that's the best thing you can say about a, a biopic is that I understand the person. And I know so much more about him and what he went through than I ever knew uh, before. And I think most people are going to have that effect. It's kind of it's 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 a you feel like you've been through the ringer after you see it. That was my initial reaction after coming out is that it's incredibly powerful. Uh, the narrative is built. The, the tension's built perfectly. We feel every moment of it. And at the end, it's even more than the sum of its parts. So I, I'm going to have to give this as, you know, an incredible recommendation, probably the best film of the year. It's only July and it may end up may very likely be the best film of the year, even come the end of the year. So I highly recommend everyone has to see Oppenheimer. And if you're certainly if you're if you're into politics, if you're into science, you really should see this film you should know more about this guy um and i would say it's probably accurate in in, in you know, more accurate than not you know usually you can't look to hollywood to give you incredible accuracy about history but i think this one nolan tries his best to be as accurate as 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 uh, as possible oh i do want to mention there's a scene early on 
once again, trying to prove my point of how good of a biopic it is and understanding the, uh, the Oppenheimer, the man, when he's a student early on. There's a scene at the beginning of the film where his professor, his tutor, who he really likes, and he admits he really likes, is tough on him. And you know how this works. Usually your professors are tough on, tougher on the people who they think have the most potential, right? So he's tough on him because he thinks he has the most potential. But there's something in Oppenheimer that says, uh, you know, this guy is, uh, you know, too tough on me. Once again, we don't know his exact, we don't know his exact thinking, but we know he tries to kill his professor. There's a, you know, as usual, there's someone puts an apple on the professor's desk and Oppenheimer injects some cyanide, some, some uh, potassium cyanide into it, looking to kill his professor. And later on, while he's sleeping, he all of a sudden says, oh, my God, what the fuck have I done? I have to get that apple before he bites into it. And he ends up, you know, he doesn't kill his professor. He, he runs in and gets the apple before he, he eats it. And you're thinking, oh, why is this in the film? He didn't kill him. You didn't, he, you know, what? And then you realize as the film goes on, this is how good it is. And it does this in so many different ways. But here is a guy. We understand his, his thinking. He lives on the edge. He's not afraid to live on the edge. There might be a little bit of a, a danger element in what he does and what he's about. But also, he has a conscience, right? So he looks to hurt his professor, but then his conscience says, I can't do this, and he doesn't kill him. And I'm trying, look, I don't like to give a lot away. It's a three-hour film, but right, that, that, that plays out as the film goes on, right? We have a guy who's living on the edge, a scientist who's dealing in very dangerous stuff that can kill people, and then there's also the conscience that comes along with him. Very well developed. You really get into the head of Oppenheimer, thanks to Christopher Nolan's script and his direction and the incredible score that runs throughout the film that, that really heightens the drama, incredible cinematography. And once again, I, I totally, totally, totally recommend 100% Oppenheimer. So go see it. Go see it. I, I, John, I know I went a long time, but it's a big film. And, you know, I want this to... Are you going to play me out? All right. You see, you see, Mr. Williams understands sometimes it's necessary to, uh, to talk. Okay, here we go. Thank, thanks, John. You ready? You guys ready? Thank you. Thank you, John. By the way, I want to thank you guys for coming, even though there's this big strike, right? There's the writer strike and the, the actors have joined them. Um, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I know you're totally in solidarity with them, though, right? Okay. You're just doing it for me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. So uh, that's the show. Uh, I know it was kind of a stunted week, just two shows because I was away. But next week we'll be back to... Uh, five days a week, Monday to Friday. I want to remind everyone, the name of this show is And Let's Be Heard. And it airs weeknights, 11 p.m. Pacific, 2 a.m. Eastern. Have a great weekend. I'll see you on the other side of the weekend. Have fun and go see Oppenheimer, okay? And I'll see you Monday night. But until then, this is Micah Chopoli reminding you that your influence counts. Use it. <laughs>